You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. For vendors, you know, if you have zero trust and MFA and encryption and all that kind of stuff, you want, you know, you want the government to know that. But also you want to point at those federal acquisition regulations and say, we meet those. These guys don't. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben shares a New York City court case about biometric surveillance at Amazon Go, their brick-and-mortar store chain. I look at new and potential regulatory moves from a pair of government agencies. And later in the show, my conversation with Bill Tolson from Archive 360. We're discussing the National Archives regulations for document management and the technology challenges for moving forward. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixthSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, visit SixthSense.com. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So my story is about Amazon Go, the brick-and-mortar chain uh, of Amazon markets that right now I believe are only in New York City. Have you ever been inside one of these Amazon Go markets? I have, I have not. not. I've, I've, only, I've seen video and photos and... I have a general idea for how they work, but why don't you explain it for our audience? So it's a market, uh, a brick-and-mortar store without any employees. You walk in. Um, there <laughs> any are, visible employees. Any visible employees, right, yeah. Right. Uh, you walk in. It's just like any other market in that respect. You take things off the shelves, uh, and Amazon collects information about what you have purchased and will charge it to your account. Mm. And they do that through various mechanisms, including deep learning algorithms, uh, measuring people's movements, uh, observing empty space on store shelves, basically a bunch of mag- magic elves in a computer uh, <laughs> figuring out what you've done when you've walked into one of these stores. I have to say, I have done this sort of thing at the Apple store where the Apple has a, an app that you can use in their retail stores. And so let's say you want a cable or, uh, you know, a, a, a new set of uh, iPods or, or, or uh, not iPods, AirPods, uh-huh. head, headphones. And um, you can walk in, pull them off the shelf, scan them with the app, and leave. It feels so weird. Saturday Night Night Live did a skit on this um, where, like, people are just shocked that they can just take something and leave. And, like, people aren't going to be suspicious that you're stealing an item. Yeah. Um, I I highly recommend the SNL skit. It's it's quite funny. I keep waiting for the trap door to open up underneath of me or a cage to drop out of the ceiling. You know, as I'm on my way out of the store. (laughs) It feels like a setup. It feels like a sting operation. Right, right. Um, But it's not. However, that doesn't uh, absolve Amazon of legal problems related to its Amazon Go stores. Hmm. So in 2021, New York passed a uh, city ordinance that required businesses to post signs if they are tracking customers' biometric information, such as facial scans or fingerprints. Okay. Now... Amazon Go stores do not use facial recognition software, uh, so you can throw that out as a cause of action. Hmm. Uh, But they do use various other kinds of biometric data collection. Uh, One of the ways you can enter the store is by having a machine read your palm print. So that's obviously biometric data. It's collected securely. 
Um, but then, at least according to this lawsuit that I'm going to talk about, Amazon is just kind of using a mishmash of biometric identifiers uh, for the entirety of somebody's time inside the store. So mm-hmm. beyond scanning palms, um, they are using sensor fusion that measures the shape, uh, shape and size of each customer's body to identify customers. They're tracking where customers are moving within the stores and determining what they've purchased. So like I said, it's a good amount of biometric data. Yeah. So this individual uh, by the name of Alfredo Perez is suing Amazon Go, saying that they didn't post adequate notice about this biometric data collection pursuant to that New York City law. And it is a class action lawsuit. Hmm. So Mr. Perez is joined by a bunch of other Amazon Go customers who say that um, they weren't properly warned about this biometric data collection. Hmm. At least according to the complaint, uh, Amazon, until very recently, did not put up any signs whatsoever within the stores saying that biometric information was being collected. Uh, They finally did about two months ago, and at least according to the complaint, they were not very uh, well-placed. They were, and it was in small type. It wasn't easy to read. Hmm. Uh, so they didn't give proper warning that biometric data was being collected. Uh, and therefore, uh, there wasn't proper notice given to customers so that they could make an informed decision about whether to uh, enter the store. So hmm. Mr. Perez uh, is represented by the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, which is a legal advocacy group uh, devoted to this new uh, privacy law. Um, and I think they're using this as a test case to see whether a, a state court system can hold a giant tech company accountable for violating local privacy laws. Interesting. Uh, so I just think this is a really interesting novel case, uh, and I'm curious to see where it goes. I'm curious, Amazon being Amazon, and, and uh, I suppose you need some kind of an app to make this work. Again, you know, in my experience with this sort of thing coming from the Apple Store, where you do need an app to do this, this seems like the kind of thing that Amazon would have buried in the EULA, right, That for the app to say, and if you use this app in one of our stores, you agree that we'll be using biometric information to track you around the store. So they definitely do do that, yeah. uh, and you have to opt in to use your palm as a biometric indicator. So okay. they've covered their bases on that. But whatever you put in the EULA, I think the 2020, uh, 2021 law is quite clear. Hmm. You're required to post signs if you are tracking customers' biometric information, uh, such as facial scans or fingerprints. Now, I don't know how far that statute extends in terms of what counts as biometric data. Mm-hmm. I suspect it would certainly include palm prints, um, but then everything else that they're measuring, people's movements, body shapes, yeah, that seems very biometric to me and is probably <laughs> covered under the law. So whether it's contracted away in the EULA or not, according to this law, it's still Amazon's responsibility to put up this clear signage. Hmm. And at least for a period of a couple of years after the law was enacted and went into effect, They weren't doing that, meaning that people who were entering these stores didn't have proper notice of everything that was uh, being collected. Um, There is also kind of an interesting procedural history here where a couple of the plaintiffs that are involved in this lawsuit notified Amazon in writing that they had visited a store, that the store was collecting biometric information, and that Amazon had not posted the sign, and Amazon at least allegedly, uh, ignored these requests. Um, They didn't send this person any sort of written statement uh, and seemingly just did not comply with the provisions of the biometric identifier information law. Hmm. Um, So according to the complaint here, Amazon, not until very recently, posted its first sign outside Amazon Go stores. Hmm. Uh, And uh, that just simply wasn't adequate uh, in terms of providing the proper notice required under the statute. That's interesting. I mean, the the palm scanning is kind of self-evident, right? If you walk in and we ask you to scan your palm for entry, that's, I guess what they're saying is that's not notice enough. The fact that you do have to do that isn't notice enough. Not not letter of the law. 
Yeah. I mean, it's also the palm print is optional. Mm. Uh, I don't know what the other ways to gain entry is. Maybe it's like a passcode or something. Yeah. I'm sure people are listening to this, banging their heads on the wall, being like, why didn't you guys visit <laughs> right. an Amazon ghost store? Right. Or, right. We'll do a field trip to New York. Do a little research, yeah. So if anybody <laughs> wants to support a uh, fact-finding mission to these stores, I would love to see all of the uh, possible avenues to gain entry. <laughs> um, but yeah, the palm the palm read is strictly voluntary. Mm-hmm. Um, but the allegation here is that even beyond the palm print, they are constantly collecting biometric information without the type of fair warning that's required in New York City. Hmm. How do you think this plays out here? I mean, is this a slap on the wrist to Amazon and kind of giving everyone else notice that the they're going to take this seriously? Probably. Yeah. Uh, so the plaintiff is seeking declaratory relief, um, some sort of declaration that Amazon has violated the law and an order requiring Amazon to comply with the law. Um, the class of plaintiffs is also suing for monetary damages, claiming that their rights were violated uh, by Amazon. I don't think this is the type of case where you would see any sort of significant amount of monetary damages. I mean, I just don't know what the concrete injury here is necessarily. Right. Uh, that would lead to a large amount of, of damages. I, I'm sure they can plead their case in court. Maybe they've suffered some type of emotional distress and mm-hmm. uh, they're going to request punitive damages. I think what's more likely is that they end up settling. Amazon uh, admits that it hadn't been properly complying with the law. Maybe they pay some type of nominal damages, uh, and Amazon puts up very obvious, uh, conspicuous signs saying, hey, notice under the 2021 (laughs) statute, we are required to to tell you that you are being monitored through by all these biometric identifiers. Hmm. I personally hope they don't settle because I would love to see what this lawsuit looks like. Mm -hmm. I mean— I think in a courtroom, talking about the nitty-gritty of the type of surveillance that exists here and what counts as proper notice and what level of biometric data collection uh, is sufficient to trigger the the necessary warning in the statute, that would all seem very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think this is the type of thing that will end up in court. Amazon certainly has the resources where they could probably just make this go away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just a local lawsuit. Amazon has a has a lot of money, right? Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating the this notion of uh, not having to use facial ID if you can recognize someone's size, shape, and gait, right? You know the way someone moves uh, is unique, and how you could identify someone for, with a security camera, perhaps even at a greater distance, because. Your body is such a larger target than just your face. Yeah, I mean, I haven't actually read most of the research on this, and it must be at least close to enough of an exact science that you can really figure out who a person is by mm-hmm. measuring their shape and size. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a lot of very clear identifying features on our face. Um, that's why there is facial recognition. There are very clear identifying uh you know, when you're doing a palm read or a or a fingerprint, that's obviously uh, you have a one in a trillion chance of getting that wrong. Yeah. Um, I don't know how that works with bodies. I mean, what about uh, my wife is an identical twin? What would happen mm. if uh, her her twin was in one of these Amazon Go stores and had the yeah. exact same body type? And well, uh, tw- twins, identical twins are always uh, that the pesky little edge case, right? For so many things, right? <laughs> When you shared your DNA with someone. I mean, try uh, going to law school because every <laughs> hypothetical is, well, what if it was their identical twin right, and they exactly. were arrested? Yeah. Um, so, yes, really? that, that is an edge case. But I do think, like, and again, I don't know the exact research on this. It seems like it's there's a, a greater chance that two people in New York City have extremely similar body type shapes and sizes and series of movements yeah. than it is that two people have identical biometric indicators uh, in their face or palm or, or fingerprint. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Ben, but you're, can you tell your wife and her sister apart from a distance? Yes, I yes I can. Uh, <laughs> but that's mostly, although I did meet them around the same time because we were in college. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know. And when you're with one of them uh, every single day for a great number of years now, uh, eventually you learn. 
<laughs> yeah, I just remember a time when, you know, this is a couple of years ago, I was uh, seeing an old friend, a childhood friend who I'd not seen in several years. And we were meeting up down in Washington, D.C. to get together and just, you know, have, have a meal together and, and just kind of see each other after not having seen each other for years. And I saw him coming down the street from a distance. And before I could, he was too far away to recognize his face, but I could, but I knew it was him by the way he moved. You know, there was a certain bounce in his step and the way that he carried himself that having known him as long as I did, I knew that was him. And I wonder if if that's a similar sort of thing. How much is the way we move unique? And is that something that can be tracked? So I think what we need to do is hire some method actors uh, <laughs> who study people's movements. Right, right. And then the, uh-huh. the the scam is you go into an Amazon Go store. Now, granted, you'd have to have an identical body type as that person. Mm-hmm. Um, but try and move exactly like an Amazon Go customer and see if their account gets charged. Right. See if we can fool the system. Yeah. I, like it. I think I, like I think it. we got a good idea for a Netflix series. There we go. Sure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, it's an interesting story. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I actually have two stories this week because uh, they're both kind of short, but uh, they're not completely unrelated from each other. So I thought I'd connect them together, see if we can connect some dots here. The first one here comes from Reuters, uh, and it's titled, Wall Street Regulator Proposes New Hacking, Data, and Market Resiliency Rules. Um, This is from the folks uh, from the Securities and Exchange Commission. And this uh, story points out that with some dissents from Republican members, uh, five members voted at a public meeting to propose rules on protecting consumer financial data, preventing hacking at stock exchanges and broker dealers, and buttressing the resiliency of market infrastructure, part of continuing concern with modernizing regulations to match advancing technological threats. Uh, So uh, the proposed regulations here would affect notification. Uh, They would require that if there's an unauthorized data access that they notify customers within 30 days. That seems like a lot to me still. Uh Uh, But um, they would, more perhaps more interesting, they would be required to notify the SEC, uh, and this is in air quotes, immediately, and again in air air quotes, of significant incidents. Now, I know this has your lawyer spidey sense tingling here, Ben, because... Those are two very fuzzy words, aren't they? They are quite (laughs) ill-defined. And I'm sure when they get into the detail of this rulemaking, Mm -hmm. uh, which is supposed to take place over the next couple months, I'm sure they will try to figure out what a proper definition of immediately is and what significant is. If they take the very lawyerly route, what they'll do is say, immediately means uh, what's customary in the industry Hmm. or what a reasonable company similarly situated would have done. Uh, there's a lot of pushback from a lot of the big brokerage firms yeah. uh, because these would seem to be pretty onerous regulations. And from the perspective of these firms, and I don't think this is completely unreasonable, immediately after an incident, you would want to be focusing on ameliorating the incident, protecting your data, um, getting the hackers out of your system, and not necessarily on reporting to the SEC. Yeah. Uh, so that seems to be the nature of the opposition, and I wonder if that opposition is persuasive enough that it affects the rulemaking process here. Mm-hmm. My take on this is that as long as the SEC is open to having the reporting be something along the lines of, hey, something happened, we're not 100% sure what's going on, but we know something happened and we're just putting you on notice that something happened and we're looking into it. Like, to me, that's a reasonable notice with immediately, right? And they're saying less than 48 hours here is what they're, they seem to be uh, proposing here. Um, to me, that seems like a good compromise between the need to notify them that, that you're aware that something has happened to your systems uh, and then, you're, you know, you'll be able to flesh it out later. But, but you're, you're marking that time and saying, okay, <laughs> it's been this amount of time since we discovered something. And then maybe later, if, you know, if it turns out to not be such a big deal or whatever, you can follow up with the SEC. But I think my, my take on this is that the spirit of this is that they don't want organizations to be able to sweep things under the rug right. and say, oh, this wasn't such a big deal, or we were able to mitigate this. So 
why, so you don't need to know about why it. Why tell yeah. the SEC if if this turned out to not be a big deal? And I get why the companies might want it to play out that way. But what do you think of my 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 uh, my attempt to suss this out? I think it's a good hypothesis. I mean, you're right that the companies uh, feel like they would both be overburdened by these regulations. And they'd be worried about taking a reputational hit. I mean, ultimately, they want the confidence of their customers. Uh, So there might be kind of a disincentive if something's a borderline hack or you're not exactly sure if your system has been compromised. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, the company might just want to sweep that under the rug. And maybe this is a way to prevent that from happening so that as the public, we have a broader uh, understanding of the threat uh, landscape in the financial sector. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that sounds like a reasonable perspective. I'm not sure if there's that much value added. I mean, I get it, but is there that much value added if the requirement is just, hey, we think something happened, we're not sure exactly what it is, we're not sure the extent of uh, the intrusion onto our device or our networks, stand by. I mean, mm-hmm. is that that valuable in terms of a piece of information? I think it's valuable because if a bunch of companies do that at the same time, maybe there's, you know, uh, some some type of malign actor out there. Yeah. Um, I think it's useful for documenting the timeline. Right. So I, I think it has value there. All right. So we will have a link to that story in the show notes. My second story here is uh, from the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Uh, They have put out notice that they're looking for public input uh, to help them with some planned rulemaking under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Now, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, uh, my understanding is that that was put in place uh, to help with um, the credit reporting agencies, Mm -hmm. right, which we all— The big three that we unfortunately have to deal with anytime we uh, purchase anything of great significance. Right, right. And the notion being that most people don't have a choice as to whether or not they interact with these three organizations. They collect information whether you like it or not, (laughs) and they share it whether you like it or not. And, uh, you know, the case can be made that that's a necessary good thing for our system. Uh, The case can be made that it's not. Um, But in this case, what... uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is doing is they're using uh, that that act, they're using their authority under that act to try to go after data brokers, which I think is very interesting. What do you make of this, Ben? Is this a is this a, a warning to data brokers out there that uh, they have a new spotlight on them? It is. I mean, this is a very preliminary step. So. This inquiry is only seeking information about business practices employed in the market so Mm -hmm. that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's efforts to administer the law uh, conform to what's actually happening in the real world. Mm. So the CFPB wants to hear about business models and practices of the data broker market, um, including details about the types of data that brokers uh, brokers collect and sell and the sources they rely upon. Um, So with this preliminary fact-finding, they'll be able to have a better understanding of um, what actual business practices are and where they need to tailor, specifically where they need to tailor their regulations. Hmm. Uh, So this is, I think, the beginning of a longer process of introducing some regulation into the Wild West of data broker collection. And Mm -hmm. I think they are leveraging the authority that they have under the Fair Credit Reporting Act uh, to take this initial action. So they are requesting comment, meaning... Uh, interested businesses or individuals can publish or or go onto the federal register and and uh, read the notice of of public rulemaking and issue their their comments to have input on this process. I'm wondering how cooperative businesses will be uh, at contributing to the in this notice and comment period because they might be sowing the seeds of their own demise uh, right, right. If, if they're not going to be uh, able to be engaged in this type of data collection going forward. So why would they want to be honest in uh, the federal rulemaking process about how they're going about collecting data? So I think um, there's going to be a major role for consumer advocacy organizations to step in and say, here's what the companies are not telling you about what type of data that's collected. I mean, do we suspect with something like this, they'll also get uh, an, an avalanche of submissions from lobbyists for, for industry here? Yes. So the way notice and comment usually works is 
I would say 90% of the comments, once you look at the file for a proposed rule, 90% of the comments are from industry or lobbyists. Hmm. 5% of the comments are from other interested parties. This is a very uh, gross Inexact calculation, <laughs> right. by the way. Okay. This is uh, this is just an anecdotal estimate. And then 5% of uh, comments are just from crazy people who live in the woods and randomly search out <laughs> right, right, uh, right. administrative rules to try and comment on. Right. Uh, so it is an issue. It tends to be dominated by lobbyists. They're the ones who know about these uh, rulemaking processes. Mm-hmm. Um, they know when to submit comments. It, it's nice that in this space there are consumer groups, and also uh, a lot of privacy-oriented organizations in Washington, D.C., think tanks, um, you know, an organization like Epic or EFF might get involved uh, in this notice and comment process. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would be the concern. That would be It would be a rulemaking process dominated by the interests of these companies and their lobbyists, and that wouldn't end up working uh, in favor of consumers, which is why, I mean, if you are a consumer that's been affected by data brokers, I think it would be incumbent upon you in in any way you can to participate in this process mm-hmm. so that it's not just the comments from industry that the, the regulators are seeing here. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we'll have a link to that uh, story in the show notes as well. So if that's something you think interests you, uh, the information is there uh, for you to submit. We would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Bill Tolson. He is from an organization called Archive 360. And we're discussing uh, some regulations from the National Archives when it comes to government agencies having to digitize and submit their documents to the National Archives. Uh, It's been kind of a moving target and a really fascinating conversation here. Here's my conversation with Bill Tolson. Basically, the M1921 is a directive to all... U.S. federal agencies that directed them to basically digitize all of their hard copy records that they're storing all over the place. Uh, hmm. You know and that, and that's you know it's going to be paper and stuff like that, but also you know microfiche. I mean, some of these agency records go back you know decades and decades. And um, basically, what the what the uh, federal government is trying to do is number one, save costs uh, by uh, digitizing other records and closing all of each agency's physical uh, uh, hard copy repositories. So many of the agencies have their own basically warehouse uh, records storage places, and then other ones utilize third parties like Iron Mountain and so forth. But as you can imagine, it it comes up, it, it adds up to a great deal of money because we are talking about a lot of records. I, I've, I've had a couple people within various agencies, as well as some other consultants, tell me that the estimation for all agencies across the federal uh, government is they're looking at anywhere from 50 to 60 billion records, hard copy records, that needs to uh, be uh, digitized and have something done with. And, And part of this whole process is 
when you get into the National Archive requirements for records, they talk about temporary records and, and permanent records. Permanent records are those records that, based on various policies within the government, eventually get shipped off to the NARA uh, warehouses for or, or servers for safekeeping for you know, decades or even centuries. The temporary ones, uh, which is that most of the day-to-day work that the agencies uh, do, uh, don't necessarily get shipped off to NARA, but they got to be kept for certain periods of time for FOIA response and, and things like that. So it, basically, the uh, M1921 is a, a, an overall direct order that, that tells agencies, get rid of your hard copy documents, get rid of the, the storage locations, and convert everything to digital. I can't help but picturing in my mind the the closing scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, the, <laughs> the, right? Uh, in, in one of my blogs, I use that graphic. <laughs> is this generally being accepted as a good idea? The the getting rid of of paper copies of of things and and you know trusting in in digits. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, you could find arguments on both sides. Like I said, it's a cost-cutting process mostly because all of these different hard copy storage repositories do do cost money, but it also adds to the the complexity, the time frame, everything else to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests by mm. citizens like us. And you can imagine if if you know an agency has a billion documents you know, sitting in a, in a warehouse somewhere and a FOIA request comes through and says, you know, I want you to give me all the information on this subject. Rounding that up, number one, takes a lot of time, but also it takes a lot of manpower to respond. And as you may or may not know, uh, federal agencies are just being absolutely deluged with FOIA requests since the pandemic started. By the way, I think it, I, it might be just because uh, the requesting citizens don't have anything else to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair but, enough. <laughs> but, but, but those those numbers of requests have skyrocketed. And, and I I, uh, I did some research oh about a year ago on one of the articles I was writing, and it said that every single federal agency that responds to FOIA requests, usually a FOIA request is anywhere from 30 to 45 days. You have to respond to it. Otherwise, you're in breach of the regulation and they could sue you and all kinds of stuff. I I saw that every fragile agency is well beyond the 30 to 45 days, usually in the uh, 12 to 15 month range. Hmm. So the deadline for this was the end of 2022 and and agencies couldn't make that deadline. So where do we stand now? Uh, Great, uh, great question. Um, In December of last year, 2022, uh, OMB and, and NARA put out a new directive, <laughs> and uh, I apologize for all these all these you know numbers and letters and stuff like that. But it, <laughs> it, the directive was called M-23-07, and what that did was that extended the deadline for all agencies having to have completed this digitization 18 more months. So June 30th, 2024, now is the new. Is, is the new deadline. And, and they did that, obviously, because they saw that most, many agencies were not going to make the original deadline. Some of them hadn't even started yet. And in fact, in me talking to various agencies, many of them have said, they put this on us, but they didn't give us budget to do it. Therefore, we haven't had the money to actually fulfill these, these requirements. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. If this was, you know, one of those uh, infamous unfunded mandates. Yes, and yeah. this is not this is not a cheap thing either. I mean, you're talking about billions upon billions of records. The actual digitization process is one thing, um, which is which is not inexpensive in itself. But but also, what do you do with the billions of records that have been turned into electronically stored information? What do you do with them? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the other part of of why I've been looking into this is that's that's the bigger question, you know. There are companies out there that will digitize very rapidly. I mean, they they have automated systems that can digitize, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages an hour and and index them and do all kinds of neat stuff. But then what? Uh, and that that's the other part of that funding thing is, do they have to 
go out and buy new information management, new records management systems to handle this kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. most agencies have some form of records management software, either on-prem or in the cloud they've been using. But number one, it's, it's, it's expensive to utilize. So if you're, if you're going from you know, 200 million records in your records management system to, to 5 or 10 billion, the cost is going to go nuts because these records management systems are not inexpensive. They charge you based on how much data you have in it and how, and, and how many records they're managing, all of that stuff. So uh, again, you get into the un, unfunded liability uh, part of this uh, as well. Have the National Archives come up with some kind of flexible standard for how to submit these? Well, there are there are already um, uh, policies, requirements, all kinds of things that the national the National Archives is is very efficient in in most things, and they they've mm-hmm. had policies uh, you know set up for for years or even decades now. And and I originally I mentioned when we first started talking, there's a difference between temporary records and 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 permanent records. Permanent records are going to be a smaller subset of all of the records, but still the, the National Archives, based on, for example, capstone requirements, if you've ever heard that, it's a, mm. it's a specific regulation within the federal agencies that says people at, at, uh, at or above these titles automatically all their stuff gets eventually funneled into uh, the NARA servers, and then everything else mostly is just going to have uh, retention disposition placed on it, and at the end of its uh, retention period, it gets disposed of. And they do that, in, like I like I mentioned, because of FOIA requirements. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know it, it makes a lot of sense. But no, Nara Nara is very good about about telling agencies what what they should and should not do, what they have to and and don't need to do. The problem is is that you know agencies, federal agencies don't tend to stand up and jump when, when NARA says something, even oh, though it's, it, by the way, it's a great, great organization, great managers and stuff in there. They really do a phenomenal job on, on collecting and, and protecting a lot of the, the country's, uh, uh data. But, uh, it, it, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you got to keep prodding. Now, the other thing, and I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure if you wanted to get into this, but I'll at least mention it. Yeah. A, a complicating factor for this digitization, and like I mentioned, what do you do with it after the fact, after you've digitized it? Um, in May of 2021, President Biden put out an executive order, uh, EO, or Executive Order 14028, titled Improving the Nation's Cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Now, what? That, that was my next question. <laughs> oh, wow. We're, we're in sync here. We're in sync. Well, I was going to say, like, what about privacy and security? I mean, it's one thing to have, you know, again, that, that Indiana Jones warehouse where, where you know, it's locked up and you have a certain amount of obscurity. But once you, you and I both know, once you digitize something, that's a different ballgame. In today's cyber environment, um, and I write a lot about, uh, you know, malware, cybersecurity, data security, but also ransomware and extortionware. Basically, this executive order, with with a much more compressed timeline, basically directed all federal agencies to improve, do two things. Uh, 14.028 first uh, and foremost says, agencies, you will move to the cloud and and quit dragging your feet. Uh, And and that's a complete move in in 99% of the time. So move to the cloud, but also as you move to the cloud, Increased cyber uh, requirements are now part of the uh, the law, and I'll give you an- another directive, M twenty two eighteen, which points at the executive order and sit from NARA and says, "Do that." Uh, so basically, what what the cyber what the new cyber requirements include are all agency systems must include multi factor authentication. Yeah, makes, makes sense. The next one is all sensitive. Data, all agency sensitive data must be encrypted in transit and at rest, which kind of makes you wonder why isn't it already? <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> and then and then thirdly, they say all systems uh, that process, hold, store data must be designed and built on zero trust architectures. Hmm. Now that's a relatively new thing for a lot of people, especially for the federal government. 
maybe mm-hmm. out, outside of the, the intelligence agencies, but it basically said the problem with this is, is that all of their, I shouldn't say all, much of their legacy uh, data applications that they have either on-prem or in the cloud are not built on zero trust. They're, you know, zero trust has only been around for a couple of years. Many of these records management, information management systems are, are 15, 20 years old. Uh, so this is, this is also the problem. So going back to my original statement on M1921, what do you do with all the data uh, mm-hmm. that you're digitizing? If your current legacy systems are not up to the task and you have to wait for them to either be redesigned or they, you have to wait before you've gotten purchased different ones that do meet the new cybersecurity requirements, you're, you could potentially be, be having you know, hundreds of terabytes or even petabytes of data with nothing, nowhere to put it, plus with no real decent security around it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and both the, the executive order as well as the, uh, the NARA directive that points back at the, the cybersecurity order, both reference uh, the NIST secure software development framework and the NIST software supply chain security guidance uh, uh, framework, which adds additional complexity for vendors. So vendors must be able to self-attest that they meet these requirements, and eventually they'll be checked up on. But even for agencies who have existing applications, um, they have to attest to those. And by the way, if those existing applications don't meet the new cyber requirements, they must be uh, retired very quickly and their existing data migrated somewhere where it can be protected per the new uh, cybersecurity requirements. So we missed the 2022 deadline. Now we have this deadline for June 2024. Uh, Does that deadline have any teeth or, or is it aspirational? It probably is. Is it probably has baby teeth and it's aspirational? Okay. Um, you know, federal federal government requirements. You know, for you and I are are <laughs> are, are set in stone. For for agencies, yes. For agencies, it's like, well, you know, we don't have the budget, or we need an extension. How many times they'll give an extension? Which you know, you just mentioned. The one extension, and by the way, the executive order on cybersecurity has not had an extension, and that was supposed to be accomplished by May 2022. And here mm. we are, you know, approaching a full year beyond that. And and you know, in in the background, we hear agencies and consultants say, well, you know, they're getting a an a, a an application by application or an agency by agency extension, those kinds of things, and it's not being. It's not being uh, publicized, but uh, I think these combined uh, are probably going to, number one, force the final move to the cloud, but also the digitization as well as the cyber requirements. Whether it's complete in June 30th, 2024, or whether it goes into another extension, um, I don't think it'll go bar, far beyond that because this is hmm. because, because of the cyber environment we're in now. That executive order must be followed eventually. Otherwise, all of our data is at, at, at stake. Um, so I think that combined with pointing back toward the digitization requirement is probably going to be, probably end up pulling the agencies, you know, kicking and screaming in, into being compliant. You know, I, I think about uh, situations that I've heard of where, you know, folks are trying to... Uh, research their family history or something like that. And they'll come against, uh, you know, a warehouse burned down or city hall burned down and all the census records. I think there's a one, there's a, there's one year of census records that many of them were lost because of a fire. The direction we're heading in with this, and I'm asking, you know, for you, someone who's steeped in this stuff, who, who works with it every day, is, is this sort of move reasonable protection against those sorts of holes, those, that, that, physical vulnerability of, of paper records and microfiches and all, all that good stuff? I, I believe so. If, if, if the basic standards are, are followed and, and they, they make sense, you know, with, with, if, if you're eventually digitizing all the records and moving it into a cloud repository of some sort and having it be managed with 
very good uh, security. Um, what that also do is most, most you probably know this. Most cloud platforms, um, you know, you could you could do uh, you know uh, replication from uh, uh, geo to geo to geo, uh, so that you know at any one time you have you have two or three backups of all the data. Not backups, right. but but failover sites, so that you know if the one in Salt Lake City you know gets destroyed in a in a in a fire, then the one in Alabama can take over, and then the one in you know New York can take over that. So I, I think intrinsically, clouds offer better better uh, uh, failover protection of the data because if a if a paper warehouse gets burned down, it's gone. Um, mm-hmm. But you know if a cloud data center, you know goes away for some whatever reason, there are usually going to be, you know, two or three full kind of failover sites of all the data that can be drawn on very, very quickly. Also, and I, and I do a lot with data security and stuff, usually the, the, the more well-known cloud platforms like, like you know, uh, Azure, like AWS, like Google, you know, they, they uh, uh, are, are, have very, very, they have great security, much better than on-prem systems. Uh, mm. Because on, on-prem systems, you've got to wait a period of time, you've got to do patches, all kinds of stuff. The, you know, an Azure and AWS, I mean, they've got thousands of people just working on data security. So uh, not that this is a commercial for them, but uh, <laughs> generally speaking, cloud systems tend to be safer for, for data loss, but also safer, safer for data security as well. And then, you know, like, like we kind of alluded to, if you're indexing all of these paper documents into electronically stored information, then you can search them. You know, you're building an index as you add new stuff into it. You could search them for FOIA, uh, for, for e-discovery, for all of those things instead of, you know, sending a team of people over into a dusty warehouse for a year looking for something. Right, right. And, and one, one, other, one other real quick point. These, all, these, these executive orders as well as these NARA and OMB directives all reference that uh, federal agencies now, um, I think at the end, I think at the end of last year, but they might have given it a slight extension. Basically, the uh, Office of Management Budget, OMB, has rewritten the federal acquisition regulations, FAR. And what they've done is they basically codified into the regulations, into the federal acquisition regulations that a, an agency cannot buy software, application, storage, whatever, that does not meet the new guidelines. So mm. once that's written into the federal acquisition regulations, I mean, that, that is the law, and a federal agency cannot, will not get an extension to go around it. So for vendors, you know, if you have zero trust and MFA and encryption and all that kind of stuff, you want, you know, you want the government to know that, but also you want to point at those federal acquisition regulations and say, we meet those. These guys don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I see all of the utility of it. And, and certainly for, for both citizens and, and the government agencies themselves, there are so many advantages to this. I just can't, I guess, help having a, a little bit of nostalgia for the, <laughs> you know, sending the, the librarian or the archivist or whoever it may be uh, back into the stacks to to find that little nugget of information you were hoping to find. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I've been around a long time. Back in the uh, decades ago, I worked uh, for the uh, defense industry. Uh, mm. You know, we were you know building satellites and 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 missile systems and all kinds of neat stuff. Um, and and you know with with a with a that kind of of work, you know, where you're doing defense work, everything uh, is a record. Everything gets stored forever. Um, and, uh, I remember we'd, we'd have, uh, air force, uh, they call them tiger teams come in every once in a while unannounced and say, we want to see all the records on this project. Hmm. And, and it was all paper. So you'd have to contact your, your outside, uh, repository and say, you know, bring me over the records on this. And it, and it, it could be, you know, 1500 bankers boxes, um, mm. and, and, <laughs> and, you know, sort, sort of a horror story. You'd start opening these boxes and there'd be, you know, a dead rat in one and, right, you know, right, a, a petrified right. sandwich in another one, uh, <laughs> you know, and all, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of objects that you'd rather never see, uh, yeah. as, well, as well as the records. Um, and, and, uh, the other thing with, with paper records is 
you know, it's like the old, it's like the old saying, you know, once you put something in, it never comes out again. Mm-hmm. Very few companies actually uh, uh, dispose of paper records if they're sitting in, you know, a third party repository and they've been there for 15 or 20 years. Nobody thinks, well, you know, I got to go go through and do a little cleanup. They they move on. So you end up with more and more and more hard copy records, and it makes it so much harder to find anything. Ben, what do you think? It was a really interesting conversation. I I have to admit I was not familiar with the world of... Uh, digitizing documents in federal agencies and (laughs) how cumbersome it is and how costly it is for these agencies. Usually when we hear about the National Archives, it's about former presidents, current presidents, former vice presidents. Yeah, lately anyway. (laughs) Who have improperly retained documents. So it's just a really interesting view into this world. Yeah. Um, And something that I just didn't know very much about. No, it's fascinating to, to talk with someone as knowledgeable as Bill, who's you know, been in this space for as long as he has, you can clearly hear that, uh, you know, he's been around the block, he knows what's going on, and so he can kind of you know, cut through the uh, <laughs> the, the gobbledygook and, and uh, let you know what you really need to know. So uh, we appreciate Bill joining us again. He's from an organization called Archive 360, and our thanks to him for spending the time with us. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>